Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, President Trump met with the nation's governors this past week and got a pretty unvarnished assessment from a number of state executives on what should be done with the Affordable Care Act. And it may have given him some pause in his quest to fully repeal and replace the health care law. The president apparently sat down with former political opponent, Ohio Governor John Kasich, who urged the president to seriously reconsider his approach to health reform. Well, Mark, I understand that Governor Kasich was pretty insistent that the president consider the collateral damage to health care coverage and certainly uh, inherent to that, the damage to many state budgets if there is a swift repeal or defunding of the Medicaid expansion, along with other aspects of the health law. And it seems like it might have struck a nerve because during that meeting, a number of advisors were called in, including HHS Secretary Tom Price, many of whom will have a direct hand in shaping future health policy under the Trump banner. You know, Margaret, Ohio was one of 31 states that expanded Medicaid coverage under the health law, but only one of a few Republican-led states that did so. Governor Kasich reportedly said that the president listened very carefully to what he had to say and that the president had a, quote, very positive response. Well, also uh, interesting, Mark, to note that the nation's Republican governors, those who actually expanded Medicaid to cover more of their uninsured and low-income residents, have been some of the most ardent supporters of continuing certain aspects of the law, and certainly fundamental to that is the Medicaid expansion. So we will see how all of this influences the discussion of uh, repeal, replace, or improve the Affordable Care Act and health reform generally as we go forward. Our guest today, though, is an expert in the completely different approach to improving health care. Keith Boone is the interoperability guru for health IT at GE. Healthcare. He's an international expert on how health information technologies need to be designed to move the needle forward in improving healthcare delivery cost and outcomes. And he has just returned from this year's HIMSS conference, one of the largest international gatherings focused on the rapidly growing realm of health information technology. And uh, early reports are we should have some very useful insights into the potential for health IT while we all seek uh, what we call the holy grail of true interoperability of health records. Laurie Robertson also weighs in. The managing editor of factcheck.org examines misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. And we'll get to our interview with GE's interoperability guru, Keith Boone, in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The president has had his say on the future of health care at his address to the joint session of Congress. The short of it, changes are in store for the Affordable Care Act. In addition to the president's proposals, a leaked version of the GOP health reform bill has revealed a few things that may cause concern for millions of Americans under the age of 65 who've gained coverage through the Affordable Care Act and even those who get insurance coverage through their employers. Speaker Paul Ryan's proposals would cut a number of things, primarily phasing out Medicaid expansion by 2020, 
Millions of Americans have gained coverage through that program, replacing it with a block grant approach, capping the amount of money spent on each individual patient. There doesn't appear to be much flexibility for those patients who may have more complex health issues. Also on the chopping block, the essential benefits coverage that was required under Obamacare. No co-pays for a host of preventive screenings and primary care visits. No co-pay for birth control, etc. And also and also mandatory care for mental health and addiction issues under the GOP plan insurers would not be required to cover all those things. The GOP plan would also repeal the Prevention and Public Health Fund, a $15 billion allocation over 10 years that lends considerable resources to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as numerous other public health initiatives across the country. And the tax on medical devices, health insurance plans, and tanning beds would also go away, as well as a $4 billion tax on the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry. Those taxes were put in place to offset the cost of paying for the Affordable Care Act. And perhaps most concerning for many older Americans not yet old enough for Medicare, removal of the provision that blocked insurers from charging more to older folks who are generally sicker. However, it doesn't remove the provision blocking insurers from denying coverage due to pre-existing conditions, but those folks are likely to see higher out-of-pocket costs and less coverage if the GOP plan goes through as written. Former Congressman Patrick Kennedy is concerned about what the current health reform efforts will do to mental health and addiction services coverage in the U.S. Kennedy did not seek re-election after his own battle with addiction came to light. He since has focused his efforts on promoting mental health parity in health policy as well as addiction support. Those seeking treatment for mental health and addiction still have a hard time accessing such treatment, even with health coverage. Kennedy has recently teamed up with former Congressman Newt Gingrich and activist Van Jones to battle the opioid crisis, now the leading cause of accidental deaths in this country. Antibiotic resistance is poised to become the world's leading killer by the year 2050. That, according to Global Health Watchers, the World Health Organization just released its list of most deadly bacteria to be on the lookout for. Among the most dangerous bacteria known today are those that cause tuberculosis and bacteria responsible for gonorrhea, for which there is almost no known treatment left that works. The World Health Organization urging global pharmaceutical industry executives and researchers to accelerate the pace of research in this critical area. And it's long been a problem, prescriptions and lack of compliance. It's estimated about 50% of those who receive prescriptions don't follow the protocols for those prescriptions, giving rise to bad outcomes. Scientists thought they would study interventions that might make a difference. Researchers solicited more than 50,000 participants, giving them one of three kinds of reminders, a pill bottle cap with a digital timer, a standard pill box or no special gadget, and then they tracked their prescription refills and found that the interventions really didn't do much at all. Medication adherence rose only slightly, both among people who got reminders and those who didn't. The researchers found patients who don't have solid routines around medication taking don't benefit all that much from these additional cues, suggesting a more effective intervention might be needed. How about a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down? I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
We're speaking today with Keith Boone, interoperability guru for GE Healthcare. In his role, Mr. Boone oversees the architecture for GE's value-based product lines, a longtime member of HL7's international board and advisor to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. He's an author and editor of over two dozen books on standard guides, including the CDA book, which examines the HL standards for clinical documents. Mr. Boone has contributed significantly to the advancement of interoperability of healthcare products around the world. He earned his Master's of Bioinformatics at Oregon Health and Science University. Keith, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Uh, Keith, you just returned from one of the largest gatherings of health information technology professionals, the HIMSS conference, where there were thousands of uh, experts in the field, a number of large stakeholders, and each year they discuss trends and opportunities to improve utilization of health information through electronic and digital platforms. And you personally were in charge of the GE healthcare portion of the interoperability showcase at HIMSS. Uh, what were some of the more significant takeaways from this year's event? And what, in your view, are some of the more significant remaining barriers to interoperability? So there's a big paradigm shift coming in interoperability that has to do with uh, API requirements in current regulations that EHR systems need to follow starting next year. And so you can see that in both where the different standards organizations that I've been working with and, and where the vendors who build those systems are putting their efforts. Over the last few years, two of the SDIs that I've been working with very closely have been focusing almost all of their attention on APIs, and vendors are implementing largely those same APIs across the board. The stuff that has been relying on pre-API interoperability paradigms is getting less attention. Um, the API work, it's a lot easier for vendors and implementers to use. And so that's going to flow down to users, uh, healthcare providers who are using health IT, and also their patients. So you're going to start to see that coming out of a lot of product later this year because of uh, regulatory deadlines to have that before we get into uh, 2018 where MIPS and MACRA, uh, some additional federal regulation, comes into play. What we're going to still see as barriers is, is the ability for anybody other than the healthcare provider to write data to the patient record. So the first round of APIs that are coming up enable others to read the data and be able to really start to move it in a very big way. Um, but we're going to see some catch up as people start to figure out, well, okay, now that we have all these APIs, who do we let start writing to the record and how, and how do we manage that? Well, Keith, I, I, that sounds like kind of a good news and maybe not 100% so good news scenario. And we'd like to talk about some of these challenges that get in the way of true interoperability in healthcare. You've certainly been involved in setting standards for health IT, both in the United States uh, and globally through your work with HL7 and with the Office of the National Coordinator. You know, we had uh, HL7 CEO Charles Jaffe on the show last year talking about the enormous challenge organizations have been facing in building uh, easily deployable and expandable IT infrastructure. And you know, one thing we'd like to ask you about is how um, are emerging standards like FHIR advancing interoperability and, and how's the industry responding to a new tool like that? So there's a joke that we have about 
a lot of different expert-based professions, you know, doctors, lawyers, computer architects. You, you get three of them in a room, and you wind <laughs> up with four opinions. Right? Yep. So it, it's hard to build things when everybody doing the work has to be an expert. There's all this complexity that you have to deal with. And so the work that HL7 had been doing on their HL7 version 3 standards was just that kind of thing. So CDA standards simplified a lot of that for us, and, and we launched a lot of the work that we were doing in interoperability because it eliminated a good deal of that complexity. But when we look at something like HL7 Fire, um, which is the emerging API, that, that's nearly erased the rest of it. So there's a fellow by the name of Grand Grieve, uh, who works now at HL7 as the product manager for Fire, who took the lessons learned from um, what we've been doing over the past decade uh, and many of the simplification efforts and alternatives that, that spawned directly into Fire. Um, and he showed everybody how experts could just not apply their knowledge to make complicated stuff work, but actually to hide the complexity from developers and implementers. And so once we got the developers and implementers working on this stuff, the implementation space became something that um, non-experts could do. And that's reduced a lot of the non-essential complexity in this work. It's made it possible really for, for high school students to, to play with APIs and and, and learn how to build apps in the healthcare space. Hmm. Well, uh, maybe high school students are playing with them, but physicians, nurse practitioners, and the other <laughs> are having a lot of difficulty uh, sort of accessing the data, you know, just sort of as a frame of reference. Back in 2009, the High Tech Acts passed tens of billions of dollars are given out to the industry to move over to electronic health records along the way to continue to receive those dollars. You have to get the meaningful use criteria. It, it ratchets it up every year. But then you've got these large forces, the American Medical Association, really pushing back on this because they say we simply aren't able to make good use of the data they're generating. So I was thinking about your earlier comments about APIs. Is there a where's the disconnect uh, between that clinician's adoption of health information technology and their ability to meet meaningful use and also to improve patient outcomes? So it's interesting because, you know, there's some who've not been successful and, and there are others who've been successful. And what you have to look at is what those who were successful have done with the data to understand it, right? You need more than just availability of data to be successful. The mm -hmm. data you're working with needs to be accurate, appropriate, but most of all, it needs to be actionable. And so there's these steps between generating data and producing outcomes, so as we talk about uh, a learning health system, data doesn't just produce outcomes. You've have got to do a lot more. You start off getting the data so you can learn what's going on. Once you've learned what's going on, now you can start to act. And action is what produces outcomes. So the organizations that are actually figuring out how to use the data to act hmm. are the ones that are being successful. You need health IT as the necessary infrastructure to build that system. Um, but it isn't sufficient by itself, right? Data isn't the answer, but the answer is in the data. To get to the actionable information, you have to start with some sort of analysis or synthesis to show the relationships of data to outcomes. You do that with analytics, but you can't just, like, get the information and the learning 
Now you need to act. Um, and to act is to change. Anyone who's been through a change management course is going to tell you change is hard. Mm-hmm. If this were an easy problem, we would have solved it decades ago. Well, I think I'm going to have to uh, remember this quote that uh, data is not the answer, but the answer is in the data. That's worth remembering. And in healthcare and in, in clinical practice, uh, a lot of the answers may come with technology, but not necessarily so. But some that we we follow with great interest that are poised to have a significant impact certainly are telehealth and telemedicine, uh, remote patient monitoring, precision medicine, and the All of Us uh, initiative, uh, artificial intelligence tools such as Watson. And the structure of all of our healthcare organizations are changing as well, certainly with a growing focus on value-based care and accountable care organizations. We're really curious from your perspective, what health market trends do you think are the most poised to facilitate improved outcomes, better health care, and better value? And, and where does health IT come into play with all that? So one of the big changes, you talked about uh, accountable care, right? That's coordination between providers and the payers that are actually paying for the care. Getting different stakeholders engaged in a way that's going to improve outcomes. So you have uh, a lot of different initiatives where you have public health and providers working together. You have providers and payers working together. Um, and that is the thing that's really going to change. When we, when we move away from sort of these distinctive little silos of provider, payer, public health, patient, research, quality, et cetera, Mm -hmm. um, and start working together as a system, that's what's going to make the outcomes happen. And health IT comes into play because it's the IT, it's that technology that enables the data movement between all of the different stakeholders. We're speaking today with Keith Boone, interoperability guru for GE Healthcare. In his role, Mr. Boone oversees the architecture for GE's value-based product lines, a longtime member of HL7's international board and advisor to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. Mr. Boone has developed and implemented a number of standards for health information technology industry. Uh, Keith, one of the conversations that loomed large at the HIMSS conference was the uncertainty in the health industry around the Trump administration's next steps regarding health reform, as well as the repeal and replace movement in Congress. And many participants said that in spite of the shifting political landscape, value-based care and growth in the health IT space will will require bipartisan support. And I think we've uh, certainly had many people on the show who've advocated that we need to move forward uh, and find that seam of opportunity and cooperation with both sides of the aisle. What are your thoughts about the political changes and how they might bode for the uh, IT world? So interestingly enough, the health IT laws and regulation that come out of the High Tech Act that were written into law at the beginning of the Obama administration were taken verbatim from an executive order that came out four years before in the Bush administration. And that language comes in large part from a prior decade of bipartisan work. And so health IT is something that I think people understand and agree needs to advance mm-hmm. to help us all solve the problem. So, so while we've seen lots of discussions around policy change and what's happening with the ACA, 
Um, we haven't seen people complaining about what high tech has been doing or has accomplished. Mm-hmm. So I believe that we're going to see a lot of that continuing forwards. And whether or not uh, ACA is repealed or rewritten or remains largely unchanged, the focus on using health IT to reduce costs is mm-hmm. something that everybody is uh, going to continue to agree on and will remain. Well, Keith, in your very popular Twitter feed, I think it's at Motorcycle Guy, you recently posted a very interesting quote from HIMSS. 165 million wearable devices are in the global marketplace now, and yet virtually none of them are connected to the electronic health record. And in spite of best efforts to design them, patient portals still pose a challenge for many patients and also their providers. So how can developers bring together wearable devices and patient portals in a way that will facilitate both better patient engagement and hopefully allow providers to capitalize on all that rich patient-generated clinical data for better care? So I think portals are a dead end. Um, they're passages to data that is simply parked somewhere. We, we've been talking for years about the data highway, and that's where data gets moving. Portals don't really move data. They just sort of give you a way to get to data that's, that's sitting still. What's interesting to me in APIs is what APIs enable not only for just providers, but, but for patients, and I'm a patient, right? So I want my data, and I want my data to come to me, and I want to be able to use that data, uh, just like providers want patient data to come to them, and they want to be able to use that data. And so data that moves is data that adds the greatest value. And so as we see uh, health IT changing to deal with that, um, the applications that move the data, the networks that enable that movement, are going to be the biggest winners. You know, there was another uh, topic which garnered a tremendous amount of attention in HIMSS and, frankly, has the industry clamoring for solutions, and that's cybersecurity. The shift to electronic and digital platforms has also led to a significant spike in health system hacks. This is an area with no simple solution. What, in your view, needs to happen to improve health data security, and are we missing a fundamental piece of the cybersecurity infrastructure? So... Security is tricky, and it's an area that I leave to experts, but I will say that this isn't just a health IT problem. We're simply uh, more sensitive to it because of the legislation and regulation we operate under. But the problems we're seeing in healthcare are appearing throughout IT in general, right? Um, You look at, at hacks and leaks, they're not just affecting health IT. You have major corporations losing tons of customer data. Fundamentally, right, we're all using the same Internet to move data around. And that Internet was built on standards developed in 1960s. Mm-hmm. And we've added layers upon layers to, to deal with security over the years. Um, there was a time when you first got on the Internet, you'd never use your credit card. I, I could ask you the question, how many of you have bought something on the Internet in the last week? And I think everybody would probably say yes. Mm-hmm. We got the Internet to the point where things were secure enough that we felt good using our credit cards purchasing them. We're going to get to the point where we learn how to secure the data and prevent the hacks, etc., um, and uh, the way we learn is occasionally we, we make mistakes and we mm-hmm. see bad things happen. 
people are out there that are working on addressing this. Um, there are new security technologies that are getting put into place. Um, and there are advancements to Internet technologies that really need to get applied. This is an area where the healthcare space can't be laggards behind the rest of the IT industry in adopting new technologies to secure their data. We've been speaking today with Keith Boone, interoperability guru at GE Healthcare, where he oversees the architecture of platforms that promote health data interoperability. You can learn more about his work by following his blog on healthcare standards at MotorcycleGuy.com or follow him on Twitter at Motorcycle underscore Guy or follow GE's work in this space at GE Healthcare. Keith, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Donald Trump made the curious claim that, quote, Obamacare covers very few people. In fact, the number of uninsured Americans has fallen by 20 million since the health care law was enacted. That's according to the National Health Interview Survey, published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Trump made the claim in a speech to the Conservative Political Action Conference and went on to say that it was necessary to, quote, deduct from the number all of the people that had great health care that they loved that was taken away from them. But there's no need to deduct anyone who lost insurance. The figures from the CDC show the total net numbers for the insured and uninsured in the country. The latest CDC report shows that the number of uninsured Americans of all ages decreased from 48.6 million in 2010, the year the ACA was enacted, to 28.2 million for January through September 2016. The country now has the lowest uninsured rate on record, 8.8%. The rate was 16% in 2010, and it has been declining every year since. And we could look only at those who gained coverage through the ACA state and federal marketplaces where individuals buy their own insurance. The number who selected an insurance plan through healthcare.gov during the open enrollment period that ended January 31st was 9.2 million and another 2.8 million signed up on the 12 state-based marketplaces as of December 24th, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And then there's the expansion of Medicaid, which 31 states plus Washington, D.C. have implemented. Trump referred to people who had their health care taken away from them. In 2013, some Americans received cancellation notices for their specific individual market plans that no longer met minimum benefit requirements under the ACA. An Urban Institute study from December 23 estimated the number getting such notices at 2.6 million. A RAND Corporation study from 2015 found that the vast majority of those with individual market insurance in 2013 were still insured in 2015, suggesting that even those who received cancellation notices found coverage through another source. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com 
We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. While more than 20 million Americans have gained coverage under the Affordable Care Act, some 30 million remain uninsured, and many of these are either immigrants or without the resources to purchase coverage. While most can access primary health care in the nation's community health centers and safety net hospitals, many more with complex conditions simply can't afford access to specialty care. Entrepreneur Jayanth Komarnani decided to create a virtual way to bypass the system and founded the Human Diagnosis Project, a network of volunteer specialists around the country offering virtual consults for the neediest patients. The Human Diagnosis Project is an online system built by the world's doctors to understand the best steps to help any patient. In the process of developing the Human Diagnosis Project, we began talking to the world's leading medical stakeholders we realized that there is an opportunity to develop a system that can ultimately help solve the problem for those people who won't have access to specialty care. Dr. Shantanu Nundi is director of the Human Diagnosis Project. He's a frontline primary care provider in a safety net clinic who saw the opportunity to provide specialty care in a cost-effective way through volunteer participation from specialists. The way the system works is safety net providers like myself can freely exchange electronic consultations with volunteer specialists from around the country so that the expertise that those specialists have that our uninsured patients currently can't have access to becomes available. It's estimated that roughly 35% of specialist visits can be done virtually. The Human Diagnosis Project offers an opportunity to create real savings in the healthcare system while effectively bringing treatment to millions of the most vulnerable. So there is a very real and large portion of situations in which providing an electronic perspective on that given problem will actually solve that problem for many patients. The Human Diagnosis Project has earned recognition as a finalist in the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition, a free online portal linking safety net providers serving underserved populations to specialty care expertise, improving outcomes for millions of uninsured and vulnerable patients, and improving care outcomes in the process. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.